uh, scripture itself describes itself, describes the scripture in different ways, describes it as life-giving, like a lamp to our feet. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, it also describes the word of God like a hammer which crushes. Today's one of those hammer days, teaching on original sin um, in the Sunday school hour. Steve Williams helpfully brought up double predestination. <laughs> but this is also going to be a difficult uh, sermon to preach. I'm actually titling my sermon, Did God Commit Genocide? Coming to Grips with the Destruction of the Canaanites. Obviously, the rhetorical question has an answer of no, he did not. But today we need to understand why he did not. I mentioned last Sunday I'm beginning this new sermon series in the book of Joshua. And last week I introduced the book of Joshua to you. Uh, But I told you there was one more matter that I needed to address uh, before starting into the book. And there's no getting around this issue. If I don't address it now up front, I'm going to have to do so at some point during this series. And the matter I'm referring to is the fact that the book of Joshua describes how the nation of Israel completely destroyed entire populations of Canaanites and then took possession of their land under the direction of God himself. So first we read how God commanded them to do this in the book of Deuteronomy. So for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Again, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verse 17, it says this, But the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded And then we see the Israelites carry out this command, at least partially, in the book of Joshua. So, for instance, it describes what they did to the city of Jericho. You know the happy Sunday school story? Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, it says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. We see something similar two chapters later in 8.26. It says, But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. And then the book goes on and describes Israel as doing the same thing with the rest of the Canaanite nations that they conquered in chapters 10 and 11. So, for instance, chapter 10, verses 34 through 37, it says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lashish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lashish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with with him up to Eglon, to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck him with the edge of the sword 
and devoted to destruction every person in it, he left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Now, passages like this in the book of Joshua, Deuteronomy, They're enough to make even the soul of the most conservative Bible-believing Christian squirm. But for other Christians, they can be a real stumbling block to their trust in the Scripture as being the inspired and inerrant Word of God. For instance, Stephen Davis, who calls himself an evangelical scholar, he said this about the holy wars in Joshua. He said, I speak for no one except myself. But I believe that killing innocent people is morally wrong. I frankly find it difficult to believe that it was God's will that every Canaanite be slaughtered. Since the Bible clearly says that this was God's will, I must conclude that the biblical writers were mistaken. And the struggle that many Christians have with such passages is exasperated by the fact that many unbelievers have discovered these passages and pointed to them as evidence that the Bible and the God it describes are to be rejected as morally reprehensible. So, for instance, it's these kinds of texts in Scripture that made the atheist Richard Dawkins feel justified in calling, quote, the God of the Old Testament a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, end quote. I'm indebted to an excellent paper that a friend of mine named Bob Gonzalez wrote for these citations. I suspect that while you would never question the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture like Stephen Davis did, for instance, in that quote above, yet many of you here this morning, right here in this room, struggle to come to grips in your soul with texts like these from the book of Joshua. In the secret confines of your heart, you honestly wonder how it could be right for God to order the Israelites to completely destroy the Canaanite nations and then take possession of their land, and how it could be right for the Israelites to actually carry that out. So how are we to respond to this struggle? Well, I just want to say that the first thing we have to do is we have to resist the temptation to try to relieve our struggle by just explaining away the aspects of these texts that we find difficult, as many Christians have actually done. So let me give you some examples. Ways that Christians have explained away the aspects of these texts that they find difficult. Of course, there are many ways to explain away these texts that I read to you from Deuteronomy and Joshua if you just reject that the Bible really is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Perhaps the most common way that liberal scholars have done this is just to say Israel destroyed the Canaanites, took their land, and then later on said that God told them to do it. However, even some evangelical scholars have come up with creative ways to explain away what they find difficult about these texts while still affirming that they are the true word of God. So, for instance, some try and say that these texts, what they really are communicating is that God did ordain the destruction of the Canaanites in his providence, but he didn't endorse them as morally right. This, however, is obviously not what the texts plainly say. We read them. They explicitly say that God told the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites. He didn't just ordain them in his secret will and condemn them in his moral will. He even helped them to do it by his own miraculous power. Famously made the sun stand still so Joshua could carry out a complete victory. 
Recognizing that, other evangelical scholars have suggested that while texts like these do say that, say that God ordered this, say the Israelites carried it out, yet we shouldn't take it in such a literal way. Rather, the author is being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating in his description of Israel's destruction of the Canaanites. God didn't really actually mean for them to destroy everything that breathed in Canaanite cities, and neither did they do so. That's just exaggerated language to elicit a certain effect in the reader. In reality, they say, the non-combatants in these Israelite cities, women, children, elderly people, almost certainly fled to safety when the Israelites attacked. Again, the problem with that interpretation is the text itself. I mean, we read one of them that explicitly says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. There's no reason really to believe that that's exaggeration, hyperbole, unless you want to relieve your discomfort with the text. Consider another example of evangelical scholars performing what I just say, it's just hermeneutical gymnastics to escape the plain meaning of these texts. One that I read, who clearly found the idea of Israel conquering Canaan and taking their land. I mean, think of the history of our country and, you know, the Indian Wars, for instance. Wanting to avoid having God order the Israelites to do the same thing, right? Finding that very distasteful. This scholar tried to suggest that what Joshua really describes is simply Israel fighting for survival against Canaanite attacks. So he described the battles in Joshua 10 and 11 at least as defensive battles. Quote, if Israel had not fought, it would have been wiped out. Well, it's hard to take this kind of interpretation seriously because it turns the entire storyline of the book of Joshua really on its head. Israel invaded the land and conquered the cities, not the other way around. And again, there's no reason to interpret the text this way other than a desire to make it more palatable to us. Now, brothers and sisters, the reason I point this out is not to, you know, embarrass peoples who interpret it this way. It's just to say, look, these are not legitimate ways to understand the text in question. As much as we might want to relieve our discomfort, with the description of Israel's destruction of the Canaanites that we find in Joshua, we mustn't interpret them away like many evangelical scholars have done. When we do that, what we're doing is we're allowing our ideas and values to shape the text of Scripture rather than letting the text of Scripture shape our ideas and values. Let me suggest a better way of coming to grips with the destruction of the Canaanites, which is described in Joshua. And let me just say, I think it has to begin with an attitude check on our part. The need for an attitude check. Anyone who reads the Bible all the way through, even if you do so, assuming this is the inspired and inerrant word of God, right? You read the Bible with that in mind, Anyone, including myself, you're going to come across things in it which you find difficult to accept. Not just difficult to understand, difficult to accept. Why? Because they offend your current moral sensibilities. What do we do when that happens? If you have had children, there are times when one of your children became upset with a decision that you made Because they genuinely, passionately believe it wasn't right. Now, you as the parent, you knew with certainty that your decision was right. But you also knew there was no way you were going to be able to explain it to your child in a way that would make them understand and accept it. Their world is simply too small. Their perspective at that stage in life is too narrow. Their experience is too limited. Their character is too immature for them to get it. 
One day they will be able to get it, but not right now. And so you find yourself knowing there's nothing you can do but require them to submit to your decision even though they believe it's unfair. Or consider another scenario. Even as adults, I would adventure to say that every single person in this room has had an experience of being convinced that someone did something wrong only to find out later that your judgment had been mistaken because you lacked the knowledge to properly understand the situation. Perhaps you discovered there were mitigating circumstances that you were unaware of. Maybe you found yourself in a similar situation doing the same thing and suddenly understood why that person before had done it. Perhaps we came to understand and realize that our moral standards by which we were judging the action were wrong, not the person's action. Whatever the case, I dare say, we have all had that experience of realizing that a judgment that we made and had been entirely convinced of was actually wrong. Here's my point. If it's possible for us as human beings to be mistaken in our judgments about fellow human beings, even though we're entirely convinced of them, how much more possible is it for us to be mistaken in our judgments about the deeds of the transcendent God of the universe. I suggested that children are often convinced that the decisions of their parents are wrong because they simply don't have the knowledge and the experience as children to understand the valid reasons that their parents have for making those decisions. How much more is that true of us with respect to God? I mean, the gap between us as finite, sinful creatures is infinitely greater. The gap between us and God, infinitely greater than the gap between your child and you. I also suggested that we have all discovered that we've been mistaken in our judgments about something that someone else did because we didn't have the knowledge to properly evaluate it. How much truer might that be with respect to our understanding of the deeds of God. God is infinite in his knowledge and wisdom. I mean, think about this. Consider the way that he has displayed his infinite knowledge and wisdom in just the complexity and the beauty of the vast creation from the cells of your body to a single flower on the side of the road, to the vastness of space and its orbiting sphere, think of the gap between your wisdom and understanding and God's. No finite human being like you or me could even come close to creating a universe so marvelous, much less human beings who are corrupted by sin like we are. God is infinite in righteousness and truth. Friend, consider his plan of salvation, which culminated in his own beloved son hanging on a cross, suffering his own wrath for our sins in our place as an expression of both perfect mercy and perfect justice. Now, no finite human being has ever devised such a plan. Especially not one like us who is corrupted by sin. You know, think Paul wonderfully summed this up in Romans 11, 33-36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you see? The Bible is the word of God. God is perfect and infinite in every aspect of his being. 
then when we come to the Bible as finite, fallen human beings, and we find something in it that doesn't sit right with us, that doesn't seem right to us, our instinct should be to assume that our judgment is misguided. Because our character is flawed. Because our perspective is out of phase with God's. In other words, when we find ourselves squirming about something Scripture tells us that God has said or done, we should have the humility of mind based on an appropriate and proper evaluation of who we are with respect to God to recognize that the cause of our discomfort is some deficiency in us, not in God. Indeed, as finite human beings, we don't even have the capacity to understand all of God's ways if he decided to explain them to us. I think of the Lord's words in Isaiah 55, 8-9. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, brother, sister, God has told us what we need to know about his deeds in Scripture. We must pray for the strength to simply trust him and submit to his decisions like a little child to his parents, knowing that his ways are perfectly right and true regardless of whether they seem so to us. This is the attitude check that we need when approaching passages about the destruction of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. Now, that being said, there are some things that we can say about these passages from the Scriptures themselves to help us come to grips with them that don't involve just simply explaining the passages away. And the first thing to note is what the Bible teaches about the universality and gravity of human sin. The universality and gravity of human sin. We actually studied this this morning in Romans chapter 5 during the Sunday school hour, but the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned in Genesis 3, his guilt and corruption were passed down to every human being. Because as the first man, he acted as our representative. So we read things like this in Romans 5, 18-19. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And again, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Or again, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, In Adam all die. So after the fall of Adam into sin, every human being is born as a guilty sinner. In other words, they're born with a sinful nature, and therefore they're born under God's righteous judgment as a result. So, for instance, David could say in Psalm 51, verse 5, and reflecting upon his own sin with Bathsheba, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And again, Ephesians 2, verse 3, it says that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By the way, as difficult as that is to hear, it is actually empirically obvious to anyone who is willing to honestly evaluate the condition, for instance, of their children. As beautiful and innocent as Children look when they're born, it really doesn't take long before their sinful nature is manifested in their actions. As soon as they are able to express it, children show that their nature is actually bent upon doing what is wrong and destructive. Don't touch that dial. And every parent very quickly finds themselves faced with the challenge of restraining these sinful tendencies of their children and trying to 
train them to do what is right. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, added to this is the fact that the penalty for sin, according to the Bible, is death. Romans 6.23 plainly says, the wages of sin is death. Even one sin, any sin, merits this punishment from a holy God. Think of how the Bible begins. A single sin, punishment of death. Genesis 2.17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This means that all humanity is under a death sentence before God because all humanity are human beings who are sinners and who sin. This is what Paul said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You might ask, why is the punishment so severe? Because the nature of sin is so grave. The Bible doesn't speak of sin. Like even many of our modern, you know, contemporary Christian songs do. As a mere mistake or a misstep. The Bible speaks of sin as rebellion against the God who made us and who owns us. You know, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. You think, what's the big deal, eating a piece of fruit? Come on. When they ate that fruit that God had told them not to eat, it was because they had believed the lie of the serpent over God's word. It was because they had questioned God's character. It was because they had decided that they should determine what was right for them instead of him. So the act of eating the forbidden fruit was in reality, as as R.C. Sproul so famously put it, an act of cosmic treason on the part of the creature against their creator. It was an, an attempt, if you want to be so frank, to dethrone God and set themselves up in this place. It was an outrageous betrayal, like adultery, of the one who had created them in his image. Entered a relationship of loving fellowship with them. Put them in a garden where they had every good thing at their disposal. And by the way, those things are true of every sin. You see, it's only when you understand the true sinfulness of sin that you can appreciate why it deserves the punishment of death. What this means is that every human being alive outside of Christ upon the earth at any time, whatever their age or circumstances, except for Jesus Christ, is a guilty sinner who deserves the punishment of death. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't even take into account the fact that while not every human being is as bad as they could be, yet they are all far worse than they typically think. Indeed, when you read the Bible, what you find is that God's perspective of the state of humanity is far more pessimistic than our perspective, than mankind's perspective about itself. I think of Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Consider the description of what it says about humanity upon the earth in Noah's day. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We are foolish if we think that somehow, well, it's a lot better today, right? What this means is that God can take the life of any human being or every human being 
at any time. And it is not unjust. Because every human being is a sinner. And the just penalty for sin is death. Indeed, we do see him do this throughout the scriptures. Genesis chapter 6 through 9. God put every human being on the face of the earth, men, women, children of all ages, all circumstances, to death by means of a global flood. He only spared eight sinners by his grace. The family of Noah. Genesis 19, and God destroyed all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, including men, women, children of all ages and circumstances, along with those of the surrounding region by raining fire and brimstone down upon them from heaven. He only spared three sinners, Lot and his two daughters. And that's an act of mercy. He puts individuals to death. At various times throughout the Bible, I think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, or think of Nabal, Abigail's husband, 1 Samuel 25, 38. And we could go on. Now, let me add a caveat at this point. While it's true, all human beings are sinners, whatever their age, whatever their circumstances, and therefore God can justly take the life of any human being at any point, that does not speak to what happens to those human beings necessarily after their death. So I know tumbling around in your mind somewhere is the issue, for instance, of whether God may have saved the infants or small children who died in the conquest of Canaan. Well, that's another matter. I wouldn't rule out that possibility. I'm hesitant to make a judgment on something about which the Bible remains largely silent. But we just don't know. But I hope that you can see that from a biblical perspective, the fact that God would put any human being to death, whether men, women, children, large groups, individuals, that's not what's surprising. We're all sinners. The punishment for sin is death. What is surprising from a biblical perspective is that God lets most human beings live. And doesn't treat them as their sins deserve during this life. In other words, it is the extent of God's mercy towards sinners. Not the extent of his justice towards sinners. That should really catch us off guard when we read the Bible. And understanding and accepting all of that. That is... What the Bible teaches about the universality and the gravity of human sin, that is critical to really coming to grips with the command of God for Israel to completely destroy the Canaanite nations. And I hope that you see that. But something else has to be added to this. We have to understand that God doesn't always execute his judgment upon sinners directly. He sometimes uses human means. Any Bible-believing Christian understands that God is the judge of mankind. He's their creator. He has the right to therefore hold human beings accountable for how they live their lives. And God will, of course, judge humanity in a full and final way at the end of history. We know that from passages like Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 14. We also see from Scripture that sometimes he intervenes in human history and executes temporal judgments upon certain human beings at certain times. So Genesis 3, the curse, the flood, Genesis 6 through 9, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18. And we could just go on and on about judgment events throughout the course of redemptive history in the Scriptures. In many cases, God executes these temporal judgments upon people in a direct way. You know, like the ten plagues that he brought upon the land of Egypt in Exodus 7-12, through 12, or when he struck Uzzah down for touching the ark in First Chronicles 13, or when he put Ananias and Sapphira to death for lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. But it's also critical to recognize that God frequently executes his judgments through other human beings. In 1 Samuel 15, do you remember? Saul had failed to kill the king of the Amalekites. Samuel showed up and he rebuked Saul 
and he executed God's judgment on the king of the Amalekites himself. 2 Kings chapter 9. The Lord raised up a man named Jehu to execute his judgment upon the house of Ahab by putting them all to death. We read that in our family worship. <clears throat> our kids were like, Ooh! Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord famously described the nation of Assyria as the rod of his anger, whom he sent against a godless nation, Israel, to tread them down as an act of his divine judgment. And this truth as well, that God sometimes uses human agents to execute his judgment, is also critical to coming to grips with the destruction of the Canaanites at the hands of the Israelites that we see recorded in the book of Joshua. There's nothing unusual about it. There's nothing untoward about it. But, having established these sort of general principles from the Scripture, we have to now consider what were the specific reasons that the Scriptures give us for the complete destruction of the Canaanites. It helps to understand the reasons that the Scripture gives us for the complete destruction of the Canaanites. And there are two main reasons mentioned in the Scripture. The first reason is this. God ordered the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites as a judgment for their sins. You remember I mentioned this last time? Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Okay, we're going all the way back to Abraham, right? And the dream and the covenant that God made with him in that dream. In, in that dream, Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham that his descendants would have to wait 400 years to receive the land of Canaan, as he promised, quote, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites, that's just a catch-all phrase for the inhabitants of Canaan. So the Lord was saying that he would wait until the sin of the Canaanites reached a breaking point before destroying them and giving their land to the descendants of Abraham. And sure enough, when the Lord brought the Israelites up out of Egypt 400 years later, the sin of the Canaanites had become truly ghastly. For instance, in Leviticus 18, the Lord described various practices which were so detestable to him that they merited that Hebrew term toeva, which is translated as abomination in our English Bibles. So these practices included things like incest and homosexuality and bestiality and child sacrifice. And then he says this in verses 24 through 30. He said to the Israelites, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. In other words, the Lord ordered the Israelites to completely destroy the inhabitants of Canaan as a just punishment for their abominable practices, which he, by the way, had borne with for centuries. Indeed, it's interesting to see that God actually hardened the hearts of the Canaanite nations to ensure that none of them would repent of their sin during the conquest of Canaan and appeal for mercy from the Israelites. In Joshua chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts 
that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, in this way, God ensured that his purpose to completely destroy the Canaanites for their sins would be fulfilled. So that's the first reason for the destruction of the Canaanites. The second reason is God ordered the destruction of the Canaanites by the Israelites to protect the Israelites from Canaanite influence. So, for instance, we read this famously in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. The Lord says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters as for your sons. For they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord should be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And there are many other passages like that. So that's the second reason for the destruction of the Canaanites, to protect the Israelites from their influence. Now let me just take a moment to explain how all these things that we've considered so far really help us to come to grips with this complete destruction of the Canaanites at the hands of Israel, which we're going to see described in the book of Joshua. First, the conquest of Canaan, it wasn't just a military campaign by Israel to get more land for themselves. It was initiated by God as an act of divine judgment. Yes, to be executed by the Israelites upon the Canaanites, and it was for their sin. And this is perfectly appropriate for God to do because we've established from the scripture God has the right to put any sinner to death at any point in time since he's the judge of all the earth and death is the penalty for sin. And he doesn't always have to judge people directly. He often does use other human beings to carry out his judgments. So that's first. Second, the conquest of Canaan, it did involve, okay, Wiping out entire populations of Canaanite people. You can't get around it. But that is not like the genocides carried out by the Nazis against the Jews or the Ottomans against the Armenians or the Tutsis against the Hutus. It's not like that. Those were attempts by one group of people to wipe out another group of people based on hatred and ethnic prejudice. That's not what's going on in the book of Joshua. For one thing, men don't have the right to take the life of their fellow men in this way on their own. But God, as their creator and judge, does. And for another, the conquest of Canaan was not motivated by human hatred and ethnic prejudice, but by God's purpose to punish sin and protect the holiness of his people. Finally, there's one more thing that needs to be said in order to help us come to grips with the complete destruction of the Canaanites. And that is that this conquest of Canaan had what we call a typological function. So a type in Scripture is a person, thing, or event which is established by God in history to foreshadow and point us forward to a greater reality, a reality that would come in Christ. And there are many types in scriptures which you are already familiar with. You know, the sacrifices of the old covenant prefigured and pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ. The priests of the old covenant prefigured and pointed forward to the priestly ministry of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that the earthly tabernacle and temple prefigured and pointed forward to the dwelling place of God in heaven, which Christ has entered upon his ascension. The city of Jerusalem an earthly copy which foreshadowed the heavenly Jerusalem described in Hebrews 12, Revelation 21. 
The Davidic kings, one after another, are all types of the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus Christ. And we could go on. In a similar way, certain judgment events in history were types. They prefigured and pointed forward to the final judgment. Jesus, in fact, famously said in Luke 17 that the final judgment would be like the flood in the days of Noah. It would be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. So also, and many scholars would agree with this, the conquest of Canaan was a judgment event which anticipated what would happen in the final judgment at the end of the age. You know, one can see, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 4, that the author of Hebrews recognized an intentional parallel between Joshua giving the Israelites rest in the land of Canaan and Jesus giving believers rest in what he calls later the heavenly country. So also, when God removed all the Canaanites from the land in judgment and then gave it to his people, Israel, according to his promise, this prefigured and pointed forward to the day when he would remove unbelieving humanity from the earth in final judgment and then give the earth to his redeemed people, the church of Jesus Christ, in a renewed form, of course, according to his promise. In other words, the complete destruction of the Canaanites from the land, men, women, children, in the book of Joshua, it established a pattern which foreshadowed the complete destruction of humanity from the earth, men, women, children, in the final judgment. You think of how this is described in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Meanwhile, however, the disciples of Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, 5, shall inherit the earth from which the wicked have been finally expelled. So understanding that typological purpose, which God intended for the conquest of Canaan, helps us to come to grips with this complete destruction of the Canaanite nations, which we shall read about in the book of Joshua. It's pointing us forward to something. If you're not a believer here this morning, I hope that all of this serves, because it should, as a sober warning to you. You're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. And as your creator and judge, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible has a right to put you to death and to cast you into eternal destruction in hell at any moment. And nothing keeps him from doing that except his mercy and patience toward you. He's given you time to repent so that you don't perish. And you say, how can I be saved from perishing? And the answer is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who out of his great compassion upon undeserving sinners like us, he entered into the world as a man and he did everything that was necessary to save us. He bore the wrath and curse of God which we deserve for our sins and then he died upon the cross 2,000 years ago. And all you must do to receive the forgiveness he has purchased is cry out to him in faith for salvation. And you can do that this very morning, and I hope you do. I urge you to do that. Because either you will trust in Christ to bear the judgment of God in your place, or you will bear it for all eternity. So the question is, what will you do? And I tell you, repent and believe in Jesus to save you from your sins. Until before it's too late. And believer, consider the depths of God's love for you in Christ. That he gave his only beloved son from heaven to save you. And that his beloved son, Jesus, willingly came into the world to do that very thing. That in an act of incomprehensible grace and mercy, the father punished the son for your sin in your place, on that little hill outside of Jerusalem. And now the cup of God's wrath toward you is empty. The curse of the law for your transgression has been borne 
away by another. And now all that's left for us, believer, is peace and joy and hope as the redeemed people of God. It's all because of Christ. He's done it all. And so he deserves glory and love from us. Well, in conclusion, there's no doubt that one of the most difficult things to come to grips with in all the scripture is this complete destruction of the Canaanite peoples at the hands of the Israelites, which is recorded in the book of Joshua. And not just that it happened, but that God endorsed it. And so as I prepared to preach through the book of Joshua, I just thought that it was important to help you understand and embrace that aspect of its contents. And I hope by God's grace that I've accomplished that this morning. But after Resurrection Sunday, we're going to dive into Joshua chapter 1. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are sobered by these things. We confess we are like little children. We're so separated from you in terms of our finiteness and our corruption as sinners. When you are the holy God of the universe that we often just simply don't understand your ways. And at times, oh God, we confess they make us uncomfortable because of our corruption and our limitations. Oh God, forgive us of our hubris, our pride at times, where we would dare in our hearts even to stand over against you in judgment and question your ways. Forgive us, O Lord. We humble ourselves to the dust. Forgive us for feeling apologetic about your word. Saying things like, well, I know it's in there. I don't know. Doesn't sound right to me, but I got to believe it. Father, we know that your word is like silver purified seven times. There is nothing to apologize for. It is holy because you are holy. Help us to embrace that. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to come under your word. To let it change our values and our thoughts and so conform our hearts, Lord, that we would embrace it in full. And help us, Lord, in this difficult matter to understand and embrace the teaching of your word. Oh God, we need your spirit. We pray that it would even have a profound effect upon us to deepen our sense of your own awesome holiness and our own wretched sinfulness as human beings and the glory, the glory of your justice, both in the final judgment And in the cross, which was the judgment day for our sins. Oh God, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.